Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, all while wearing his pants frontwards, it's Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. <laughs> you bet. Good to be here, man. Also on board today is senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie. Also, while wearing his pants forwards, it's Stuart Stevens. Stu, great to have you back. Great to be here. I'd like to know how you know that, but, you know, I wouldn't jump to conclusions, <laughs> but I appreciate giving me the benefit of the doubt. And we are three for three today. Also, I believe wearing pants and rounding out the panel is co-founder of The Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt. Steve, great to have you back. Good to see you, Reed. I'm wearing shorts, though they're not shorts, which is always important. And <laughs> after the pandemic, I may never wear pants again. I'm thinking we should try to make for the merch store Lincoln Project Jort overalls. Jort overalls. Huh? <laughs> All right. That's a that is high fashion in Tallahassee, Florida, gang. You have your formal jorts and your everyday jorts. Though I don't have any market research on this, and it's mostly intuition. It's safe to say that none of us own George, but I think a lot of these guys around Trump do, and <laughs> not a good thing at all. I would like to say that, Steve, I think you're probably overshooting. I believe that you, having grown up in New Jersey, Rick being from the greater Tampa area, and Stuart being a native of Mississippi, that there is a chance that all of you wore jean shorts and or overalls at one point in your lives. <laughs> I want to just say that being from New Jersey, you did not wear jorts of any type, though I may not be able to be as declarative with regard to parachute pants. Um, I'll just leave it. Just leave it at there. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, listen, thanks for joining this week's edition of Fashion with the Lincoln Project. So everybody, we're going to talk about a couple things today. First is Donald Trump's North Carolina speech. And then we'll get on to Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia's decision to oppose the, quote, For the People Act in an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette Mail. So this past weekend, Donald Trump returned to the stage, literally, to kick off his summer tour at the annual North Carolina Republican State Convention. During the speech, he continued to lie about the 2020 election, praised the voter suppression efforts of Republican legislatures, took aim at Dr. Anthony Fauci, and he conveniently didn't have a word to say about what happened on January 6th. But before we get into our discussion, let's hear a little bit of what he had to say on Saturday night. I am not the one trying to undermine American democracy. I'm the one that's trying to save it. Please remember that. We all know what happened with the election. And we can never, ever let that happen again. And we're going to go forward and we're going to continue to look and things are being found that 
is not even believable. But we have to do that, because without going back, you're not going to go forward. The thing that I get most is that, sir, we can't let that happen again. If we're going to, if we're going to work and work and spend money and make contributions, sir, will the same thing happen in 2022 to Ted and to other people? Will the same thing happen as happened in 20? We have to be able to say absolutely not. That's why I love what they've done in Texas. I love what they're doing in Florida and done in Florida. I would like to see Georgia be much tougher. They don't have signature verification. They don't have things that Georgia has to be tougher. But I love what's going on in so many states. So, Rick, well, let's just start with the energy level. I mean, this is low energy Donald, if I've ever heard it. And then second, this sort of always goes into the idea of what the conservatives and what good authoritarian movements do, which is, if you're doing something you know people don't like, say it's your opponent doing it. Absolutely right. And there was a lot of mockery out there of this speech, a lot of people making fun of it, laughing about it. Oh, he's lost a step. He's all over the board. He's mumbling. He's stumbling. Well, Steve always says we had a failure of imagination in 2016. And I think we were having a failure of imagination on the night of June 4th, 2021. A lot of people were watching that speech and they were hearing everything they wanted. They want him to play the culture war games. They wanted to push the big lie, and they love it. It is what makes them feel happy and fulfilled as humans for whatever you know weird-ass reason. And so it's important to look back at what we've learned in the past and not take this speech lightly and not take these remarks lightly, even though they were hilarious, of course. But, you know, for a lot of his fans, that's the point. They like it. They like the weird stumbling, mumbling, weird, random ideas coming out of him. And he is also doing, as you said, he's projecting forward. He's saying, you know, the other side's cheating. It's not us. Well, dude, it's you. It's you, Donald. But that is exactly a page torn from the authoritarian playbook. You know, Stuart, I think I always fall into the same trap, right? And maybe that's something I need to remind myself of, is that when you watch him and you hear him, and we've been paying so much attention to him for so long, maybe it's the idea that anybody after watching and listening to him, both in mannerism and words, chooses to follow him or fear him, that maybe it just stretches credulity in my own head. Rick's point about the imagination piece is right, but the first step is to underestimate him. Yeah, I mean, I think that Trump is an excuse in a lot of ways, an excuse to embrace your worst side. It's an excuse that it's okay to be racist. It's an excuse to say that you want to limit who can vote. This idea that Trump is charismatic and does all of this, I'm not sure I really buy it as much as the fact that he is giving people permission to do something that they want to do. And that's, you know, I mean, Mussolini was absurd. There are a lot of classic so-called strongmen who appear very weak when you look at them, and yet they're still able to do great damage to their country. And so, Steve, something... I think we've all talked about is that maybe Trump didn't start what has become of the Republican Party. I think he was an accelerant to it. You know, you talked about this morning before we got on the podcast about this movement has, you know, long lived dormant in the United States and it always looks for a host and maybe this is the host it's found, but it also seems to have metastasized past him. So how much of this is still the energy that he provides as opposed to the hole in the wall that he blew in American democracy, and now other people are just rushing through it. We could talk for hours about how we got here. We could talk about the fact that 
If you look at the Washington Monument, there's a line about a third of the way up where construction had stopped for 25 years. The issue was that the Pope had donated marble and the know-nothings came, seized the Catholic marble, threw it in the Potomac River, and there you go for 25 years. Talk about Father Coughlin. You could talk about 100 years of racial terror between the end of the Civil War. You could talk about 30,000 Nazis in Madison Square Garden in 39. This strain has always been with us. Bull Connor, George Wallace, and the latest manifestation of it is Donald Trump. There are three things stepping outside of the analysis psychologically that I think are important to be attentive towards. First is that the condition of our American democracy is worse today than it was on January 6th. The cancer around the big lie has made the elected officials, Itzinger, Gonzalez, and Cheney in the House of Representatives, for example, more extreme on the question of Trump and the big lie. If we had all of that again, you would have seen states sending alternate electors, so on and so forth. Two, this fight that we're in right now, this rescission around the fundamental question about the great debate, the great fight in America's history is about who gets to count as a full person. In our constitution, blacks were counted as three-fifths a person. 13th, 14th, 15th amendments established that black people in America were full human beings, yet they weren't treated as such under the law that was enforceable at least anywhere for another hundred years. And so You know, 56 years after the Voting Rights Act, we stand in this moment right now where we see a rescission in all of these things. And at the end of the day, a man who has no faith to democracy that's racially divisive is in full control of the mechanisms of the institution of the Republican Party. He's the front runner. He remains completely unchallenged by the most powerful elected Republican leaders in the country. And so we have a broken media in this country that looks at his Twitter counts, looks at his Facebook size, looks at, hey, you know, he had a blog that, you know, didn't hold up. And that's how they assess power. And it's so profoundly stupid. There's not a word for it. And it's dangerous. This man is the leader of an autocratic movement and is the unquestioned loyalty of the overwhelming majority of the state parties in the country, the Republican Party, and an overwhelming majority of elected Republicans. The party has shrunk. Because most normal Americans are repelled by this, it's down to about 34% identification. It's become more extreme. As it becomes more extreme, the cult of personality will intensify around Trump. And anybody who says he's not the indisputed leader, that he's not a figure of our present and a plague on our future, is profoundly naive. So, Rick, let me extend on Steve's point about the media. This morning, as we're recording, there was something about Donald Trump's social media mentions or social media posts, you know, pre him being suspended from Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, and post. And, you know, how scholars are talking about how this is a really important thing about how social media can control the instincts of someone like Donald Trump. But to Steve's point, I mean, admittedly, this is the New York Times. Is this the kind of thing where they're trying to tell themselves that he's not in charge, that it's not as bad as we think it is? Because if you know anything about politics, and I'd like to think that this group does, as Steve said, like it's a profoundly not just stupid, it's ignorant on its face about how to analyze what the Republican is and who leads it. People who think Donald Trump is, quote unquote, the former guy 
and that they can just pretend that he's not going to be there in their Twitter feed or their Facebook mentions. There's a technical term in politics we use for this. They're out of their fucking minds. Donald Trump runs the Republican Party. There's not a single party chairman in this country who would stand up and say, Joe Biden won the election. If any reporter wants to challenge me on that, I defy you to do so. Go out and get a state party chairman who will willingly say in public, Donald Trump got his ass beat by Joe Biden in a fair and free election. They won't do it. And you go out and ask any of these candidates who are whispering and trying to put their campaigns for 2024 together when they're going to Iowa or New Hampshire or South Carolina or when they're going to announce. And they will all say, I can't do anything until Donald makes a decision. Oh, you know, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, all of these people, they know that Donald Trump owns the party and owns their souls lock, stock, and barrel. They have no freedom of movement. They have no authority. They have no autonomy. They have no agency because he runs everything in that party. They have nothing at all, not one element of individual liberty when it comes to their political futures. Donald Trump owns them. He will school them the second they get too far out ahead of themselves. And they all know it in their hearts. They all understand it in their gut. But they are really going to show very soon now they're going to feel this conflict. Does it make sense to try to move first and get your head cut off by Trump? Or do they wait and not raise the money, not build the infrastructure, not do the political work that it would take to win for president? Part of these stories that we see all the time, oh, Trump's a thing of the past. Well, that's always what's happening when super lobbyist and Mitch McConnell's number one uh, aide, Josh Holmes, who really runs most of Washington. Josh Holmes really runs most of D.C. When you hear these people saying this, they're whistling past the graveyard. They know what's really happening, and it's that Donald Trump runs everything. So, Stuart, to me, you know, it's interesting, as we've talked about, that Trump is many things. He intuits his base very well. He's very instinctive about what he knows will drive attention toward himself. But what's also very interesting is how little actual work he has to do to make the party, its enablers, its financiers, its elected officials sort of stay in line. I mean, just look at the example of Liz Cheney, right? She came out against him. She said he should never be president again. He sends out a statement, right? Just, you know, it was ridiculous on its face. You know, he probably dictated it. They probably wrote it in three minutes. And that's really all he had to do to spin that up. And so I think to Steve's point, sometimes you don't have to be a tactician of a Vladimir Lenin, right? He's just able to say, go after that person and his people take care of it. I think one of the hard things, at least for me to grasp was that Donald Trump is what the Republican Party wants to be. So he's not forcing people to do any of this. He's not taking these principal people and blackmailing them or threatening them. They want to be Donald Trump. They embrace that side of him. And I think that's the most troubling but important aspect of it, which goes to, you know, as Steve or both of you say often, you know, you can't negotiate with these people. They are what they want to be. It's not like they've deviated from some true sense of self and you want to give them an access ramp to get back to who they really are. This is who they really are. They really are the people that want to limit who can vote. That's easier than going out and doing the hard work to earn the votes of an increasingly non-white America. It's easier if you just limit it to white people. I mean, it's like a no-brainer. It's just a complete collapse of a party. The only thing that I can think of in modern times is like, the Communist Party and the Soviet Union, where what it said it was and what it really was was so disparate that finally it just collapsed. 
I don't think this Republican Party will collapse. I think it has to be crushed. So, guys, I want to move on because, as we've said, I think all of these things are interconnected in their own ways, some more significantly, some less so, but they all have their own effect. And so on Sunday, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, wrote an op-ed in the Charleston Gazette-Mail in which he announced that he would not support Senate Bill 1, the so-called For the People Act, and also reaffirmed that he would not vote to end the Senate filibuster in which you need 60 votes to create what's called cloture that would allow a bill to advance. Many Democrats, you know, especially in the House, but also some in the Senate, were frustrated with Manchin. He has been the talk of Washington, D.C., really since it was realized that Chuck Schumer and the Democrats would be in the majority in the Senate by a hair's breadth. He's a Democrat in the reddest state in the country. And so just looking through his op-ed, and Steve, I want to go to you first, he says he doesn't want to vote on something he can't take home and explain to his voters and say, quote, that would expedite one party's agenda. And this is the context in which he puts voting rights, is that it's not a thing that's good for the American people writ large, but because there is no bipartisanship or very little bipartisanship on how Democrats are looking to reform voting in the United States, mostly, I would say, to guarantee it, that this is pushing one party's agenda. I mean, what does that say to you? It says a couple of things. First off, everything that Joe Manchin has said in that op-ed is true and valid from the perspective of a world of the ivory tower. And that's not the world we live in. He talks about the fact, and it's true, that voting legislation should by definition be bipartisan, right? This isn't a hard concept to understand, right? You know, even the most heated rivalries in the NFL, the teams, the fans have to agree to what the rules of the game are. Right. So one sided election lawmaking as a general proposition is a sign of illiberalism in a healthy democratic society. The second thing that Joe Manchin says, and again, he's right about this in a normal context, he's saying to his Democratic colleagues, like, hey, we have a very thin majority here. President won by some 40 some thousand votes across three states by a quarter point. We had a runoff in Georgia, and we have a one-seat majority, five in the House. And so if they get back in power, they will abuse this Senate rule as we are abusing it now. And the question around this is, right, how to gauge this, how to contextualize it, how to think about it. And the reality is this. Joe Manchin is a fool if he sees good faith and open hands from the people who are sitting across the aisle from him. We have hundreds of pieces of legislation in the country that have been filed aimed at restricting voting rights, right? And let's put it through a test, right? Let's apply three questions to it. Number one, would any of that legislation have been filed if Donald Trump had won the election? And the answer to that question is no, none of that legislation would have been filed if Donald Trump was the winner of the election. Question two, is all of that legislation based on the premise of the big lie that Donald Trump won the election, but it was stolen from him by black votes that were illegitimate that appeared from the ether in the wards of America's inner cities? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, all of the legislation is derivative of that big lie. And number three, does the legislation make it harder for black people to vote, for brown people to vote? And it does. 
And so when you think about this and you think about the history of the country and the history of the state of West Virginia, there is a West Virginia because West Virginia was loyal to the Union. It seceded from Virginia at the Civil War and it was anti-slavery. When you look out across the history of the country, Black people substantially with real federal legislation with teeth in it got the right to vote in America in 1965. And in the aftermath of this election and on the foundation of the immorality of the big lie, and it is an immoral lie, we see this great effort to take back those voting rights. And so the question is around two issues. What's more important? defense of the Constitution, and are you prepared to strike down a Senate rule that is being used to assault faith and belief in American democracy? The first question is around the 1-6 commission. If we don't have a commission by the Congress that holds to account everybody who is tangentially involved in an attack on the Congress, you get another generation of political violence in this country. And if you don't strike down the rule, you get hundreds of pieces of legislation that start to form a new 21st century discriminatory framework that will be different from Jim Crow, but will extend yet into another American century, the injustice that has followed Black Americans since their arrival on the continent by force. So, Stuart, I want to come to you next, but Rob, I want to play the clip about Manchin being naive from Chris Wallace. Senator McConnell, the head of the Republicans in the Senate, says that he's 100 percent focused on blocking the Biden agenda. Uh, Question, aren't you being naive about this continuing talk about bipartisan cooperation? I'm not being naive. I think he's 100 percent wrong in trying to block all the good things that we're trying to do for America. We a lot better if we had participation, and we're getting participation. But when it comes time to final vote, um, and I disagree with with uh, Leader McConnell on this, a minority leader on on this issue, that he puts politics before the policies that I think we need for our country. I'm going to continue to keep working with my bipartisan friends, and hopefully we can get more of them. I mean, so Stuart, is it like 1988 in Joe Manchin's head or what? <laughs> Here's the gut test, right? If if we were sitting around saying, okay, what would be the ultimate test about bipartisanship and whether or not Republicans would do something for the good of the country? And we said, okay, so what if like, say, the leader of the Republican Party urged a mob to break into their offices and try to kill them? Would that affect them? <laughs> And, you know, we go, well, that's ridiculous. Of course it would. But it seems to me like that's a pretty good test of good faith or bad faith. I don't know what better test you can make. Sort of like in Alabama when Roy Moore ran. It's like a Saturday Night Live sketch. Okay, what would it take to get Republicans, white Republicans, to vote for a moderate Democrat? You go, well, what if the Republican was a child molester? No, not a problem, you know. He got like almost 70% of that vote. So I think you just have to live in the real world. It's not a world in which both sides are acting in good faith. I mean, Manchin, how does he want to be recorded as history? Why run for the Senate if you're not going to do something that, given an opportunity, that is truly historic and meaningful? You know, this is one of those things where I feel like Manchin could be, you know, maybe a really good example of late stage American democracy, right? He's a, I think, a wealthy guy 
who runs for the United States Senate. He apparently lives on either a houseboat or a mansion in the Potomac River. He, you know, is transactional in nature. He's a blue dog Democrat in a very red state. He believes in bipartisanship when it hasn't existed in some time. His daughter is, you know, a pharmaceutical CEO who jacked up the price of EpiPens, then, you know, got a three, four, five X increase in her own salary and, you know, got off scot-free because of it. I mean, I'm not sure there's anybody who could sort of be the exemplar of American politics today more than Joe Manchin. Is Manchin an example of why people now go to Washington to serve in Congress? Does he enjoy this spotlight he's now found himself in, that he is the sort of Washington's indispensable man? I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't really know him at all to make an assessment on his character. I can just speak to his judgment. And if we can agree on a couple of things, you know, that Chris Wallace asked a question in the English language. I understood it. Joe Manchin answered it in English, and it was all gibberish. It's nonsense talk. One of the reasons I like to talk about history and use the stories of history as analogies to our current circumstances is not to establish causality, not to try to say because X happened in 1930 and Y is similar in 2021, ergo, the next thing that will happen is what happened in the 1930s. But the lessons of history, for example, in the 1930s with Neville Chamberlain are instructive here. Neville Chamberlain wasn't a dishonorable man. And everybody in England after the Holocaust of the First World War, 15 million people killed, a generation wiped out, can't imagine that there could ever be anything worse, one, and two, that it's unimaginable to fight another war. So during the 1920s, you think about it, it makes perfect sense. One way to reduce the risk of war is we'll have smaller ships and smaller navies. And so a series of naval treaties are signed. When the Germans bring the Nazis to power and the Germans start to rearm, there's really a lonely voice in British politics who's regarded as a crank. His name is Winston Churchill. And he's warning about this. Conventional wisdom among the political class in France or Britain in the early years of German rearmament was this, that they had to disarm faster. That disarmament under the provisions of the treaty would show the good faith of the French and the British to the Germans about avoiding a fight. It was delusion that was the sin. Delusion. So when you look at Manchin's words, is there a threat to democracy in this country? Yes, there is. And it's a very dangerous one. What is happening in the country outside of Washington? Well, everywhere they can, you see Republicans becoming lab technicians for the authoritarian movement in the states, starting with the voting rights restriction. So is it preferable to use the filibuster to do this? Probably not. But the repeal of the filibuster is necessary to stop the frontal attack on voting rights that's taking place at a state level sustained by the big lie. And his obtusity in recognizing that is just really disturbing. He's the exemplar for our era of a politician when we need political leaders. Manchin's a politician. Liz Cheney is a political leader. We don't have enough political leaders in either party 
But we need more fighting Democrats in this country because the fighting Democrats are the ones on the front lines of American democracy. So, Stuart, to go on from that perspective, I always like to say, you know, we are, as the Lincoln Project, in a unique place in American politics. We're no longer Republicans. Steve's a Democrat, but most of us aren't Democrats. We're not a policy organization. We're a pro-America, pro-democracy organization. So we don't have a lot of the, you could call it oversight, responsibility to, you know, a candidate, a party, those sorts of things. But we also don't operate in a vacuum, right? There is a Republican Party that is doing one thing. And there's a Democratic Party that seems not to either A, understand or B, want to understand what is going on in front of them. And Steve, as you said something this morning, and I want to get Stuart's point on this, is like, if you can't get it done with Manchin in this context, get it done some other way. So like, what is the holdup? Well, I mean, this thing has been going through my head, and, and Steve mentioned it with the disarmament piece in Europe in the 20s and 30s. Whatever the worst outcome is that you're trying to avoid, humanity appears always drawn to the things it will do to most bring about their worst outcome. Does that make sense? And it seems like we're doing it again. Yeah, I think there is an understandable reluctance to assume that we live in a normal time. We're coming off a pandemic. It's been a horrendous year. We have a normal president. We have normal human beings running the government, people that actually want to run the government, that aren't working out deep-set personal issues through the government, like Stephen Miller, where he used government as some sort of therapy for his deep resentment and anger. But it's not a normal time. And that, I think, for us in the Lincoln Project, is our greatest challenge, that sound the alarm for what this really is, because we know these people. And we're not about the business of passing this piece of legislation or promoting this candidate specifically. We don't have an agenda of a party, but we can see the threat, I think, more clearly because of that. And I think we're in a situation like a pandemic that whatever you say at the beginning will seem alarmist and whatever you say at the end will seem inadequate. And I think this is just beginning. This is going to be a long, long struggle. So, Steve, you told me a story earlier today, and I'd love it if you'd help leaven the mood here at the Lincoln Project. You mentioned that there are two kinds of people in Washington. There are politicians and there are political leaders. And you mentioned that Joe Manchin is a politician. Could you just share the little anecdote you did with me with the crowd here today? I promise that I'll bring this story around. I think this happened in either 2008 or nine, and it happened at the Soggy Dollar Bar off of Yost Van Dyke in the British Virgin Islands. You know, it starts off, so I went there immediately after McCain's loss in 2008. We had told Sarah Palin that night, right, that she wouldn't be giving her own concession speech. John McCain had given his. President-elect Obama was on the stage giving his, and I got a radio saying that Palin was headed to the stage to give her concession speech. And my last command of the John McCain campaign to the person who called to tell me that was to pull the plug on the fucking generator. <laughs> literally, as Obama was speaking, she hit the top step and all the power went out. And I, I flew that night through the night and wound up in one of Earth's great places, Yost Van Dyke. Yost Van Dyke, named after a pirate, is an island in the British Virgin Islands, and it's got about 300 people that live on it full time. They got electricity in 1997, and there's probably about 30 bars on this stretch of beach. 
Wait, wait, wait. 300 people and 30 bars? On one side. Now, it's got another iconic great bar on the other side called Foxy's, right? But this is the Soggy Dollar Bar. Now, great thing about the Soggy Dollar Bar, there's no dock on Yos Van Dyke here on this beach. So you got to swim for it from the boat. And the Soggy Dollar Bar is famous for the painkiller. And you get to keep each cup, right? So you go there and most people will have 30 to 45 painkillers and then nearly drown swimming back to the <laughs> swimming park to the boat. So the memory of this is fuzzy. You know, you're on all the boats, you know, anchored off of the beach there. And there's three patrol boats with lights and sirens on, right? And it's like, you're like, what the fuck is going on, right? Does I didn't even know the British Virgin Islands had a Navy. You don't even, you don't even have a dock here at the bar. And they were like, no, no. They're like, it's the governor of West Virginia. And I was like, who's that? And it was a guy from the British Virgin Islands looked me in the eye. He was like, it's Joe Manchin. Like, I should have known. He was like, anyone else know the governor of West Virginia is Joe Manchin? But there he was. But I was always like, why does he need like three patrol boats around him at this Caribbean bar? Maybe he thought himself too important to swim for it. So he needed a, an escort, an armed escort into the beach. <laughs> well, on that note, gents, thank you so much. If you're looking for Steve, you saw him on LPTV this week. You're hearing him today. I think you'll probably see a little bit more of him. You can find Stuart on Twitter at Stuart P. Stevens. And you can find Rick at the Rick Wilson. And of course, you can find me at Reed Galen. And with all that, we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at virginia.org.